HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Cane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Cane5.com. I'm Erica Wise, host of Let's Get Real, the cooking show about finding, preparing, and eating food. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit HeritageRadioNetwork.org for thousands more. Good afternoon and welcome. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we have a guest in studio, which hardly ever happens, but uh, with me is the one and only Marion Nessel, uh, the Paulette Godard Professor at the Department of Nutrition, Food Studies, and Public Health at NYU. She has been on this show many times, um, and she's been on the network many times. She is also the author, in case you don't know, of Food Politics, of Safe Food, of Pet Food Politics, What to Eat, Feed Your Pet Right, and Why Calories Count, the latter uh, two she wrote with uh, Professor Malden Nesheim from Cornell. She is a frequent speaker at multitude of events, and most recently, she was at the Milan Food Expo in Italy, which opened a couple of weeks ago, um, partly organized the U.S. Pavilion by our own Mitchell Davis from Taste Matters. So um, welcome to the show, Marion. Thanks for coming back. Happy to be here. It's great to have you. It's great to see you. It's been a long time because you Mm -hmm. were on... Uh, sabbatical this semester so you and were traveling. out in Berkeley and you were traveling and you were writing a book mm-hmm. and coming book out in is, October what is it soda politics taking on big soda and winning oh boy <laughs> first week in October I know the pins are in the voodoo doll right now <laughs> <laughs> I'm surprised you haven't been struck with a you know a, 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 an un, unnameable malady from I'm that. just giving facts just giving facts <laughs> as only you can Marion it's so, a very big book uh, I bet it's a big book you've been working on this for quite a while yeah. I know yeah it's so they're, be... thi- they're thinking it's going to be around 550 pages Wow. So it's being published by Oxford University Press's Encyclopedia Division, and that's why I think. Oh, wow. <laughs> well, I look forward to that, and of course, you'll be back here to talk about I it. I certainly hope so. You certainly will. Um, but tell us about the Milan Expo. You were a speaker at one point there, um, and you uh, toured the Expo. And actually, if people want to learn more, they can go to Marion's blog, Food Politics. But tell us what you thought about it. Well, it's hard to know what to think about it. It's enormous. And it has pavilions that are enormous that represent 
many, many, many countries in the world have their own. Sure. Um, I mostly hung out at the United States Pavilion because I wanted to see what Mitchell was up to. Yeah. The James Beard Foundation won the contract for doing for running the American Pavilion. Amazing. And so he's there until the end of October sort of keeping an eye on things and yeah. trying to make it work in Italy, which is challenging. I can imagine. Um, but it got finished on time. It's beautiful. And it's enormous, and it's a boardwalk. They actually used the wood from the Coney Island boardwalk that had to be taken up because of Hurricane Sandy, and they took that wood and recycled it into the boardwalk through the pavilion. Wow. Um, And the pavilion has a couple of things that are absolutely amazing. One is a wall of water Uh that has designs on it. I still don't know how they did that, but it's particularly fabulous at night where you can watch all these different patterns. And then it has this wall of vegetables mm-hmm. planted vertically. It's a vertical it's garden, a vertical garden yeah. that undulates so that the panels that these that the plants are stuck into open and close in a regular order and it looks like this big wave going through and wow. it's gorgeous. And the undulation is how the plants get their light, they all get the same well, amount of light by doing a, that, or is that just a decorative feature? I think feature? it's decorative. I don't uh-huh. think it has a particular function. Mm. Um, but the entire sort of message of the pavilion is that Americans don't just do industrial agriculture. Americans do artisanal food, and they do sustainable agriculture. They do organics. Uh, They care about diet and health. You go in, and the first thing you see is a video of President Obama talking about how important food is for uh, how everybody should have access to a nutrition, health, nutritious, healthy, affordable diet, right. and how we all need to be working together to create sustainable food systems. And then it goes on from there. Wow. And uh, there is a, a Coca-Cola pavilion, I believe? There is a separate Coca-Cola pavilion. It's not Coca- part of the U.S. Not pavilion? part of the U.S. How pavilion at all, although it's not too far from it. No, uh, PepsiCo is a sponsor of right. the United States pavilion. And so the food trucks, every pavilion has to have food. Yes. And the American pavilion does this through food trucks. Uh-huh. And it has food trucks sort of parked in the back of the pavilion. And they have lobster rolls and shrimp rolls and hamburgers and hot dogs dogs and Pepsi and yeah. Lay's potato chips because wow. PepsiCo was a sponsor. But the Coca-Cola Pavilion, which I was very interested in because of the soda book of that's course. coming out in the fall, uh, you uh, wait online and you register and you get a little chip on a keychain that you use to sort of open up all of the exhibits and the exhibits are personalized so the exhibits say hello Marion we'd like to talk to you about our efforts in sustainability and our efforts in picking up waste and our efforts in doing all of these things to fix problems that they caused in the first place yeah exactly well (laughs) uh, did they have a solution for obesity the solution for obesity is more exercise is what they're usually yes yeah it's very much so a, they do have it's that. very much a move kind of thing and yeah. there's a platform on which you can 
um, jump. Know, jump and do those kinds of things, right? Oh, my God. They also had a gift shop, and that was kind of amazing, too, because they had purses and bags made out of flip tops yes. um, from the cans, and it didn't say anything about who was making them or how much the people who made them were paid. Well, it was but probably they sold slave for, labor in they, Vietnam. They sold for a couple of hundred euros. Wow. I mean, this was really high-end stuff. Wow. I didn't even oh. know they made flip-tops anymore that come out of the can. These must be archaic Well, they may flip be. Flip-tops. They may be. I don't know. I noticed in Vietnam, uh, speaking of um, clothing made out of um, soda cans, when I went to see the tunnels in um, Kuchi, which is, you know, the vast underground network of tunnels that the Viet Cong lived in for some of them up to eight years, and they, for some reason, had many, many p- products made out of old soda cans, including hats and purses oh. and vests. Mm-hmm. And I have the feeling that there's a bit of an industry in that down in Vietnam, and that's probably where they had that made. It's possible. For this thing. And it I'm didn't sure they say. didn't pay didn't. those workers any 200 yeah. euros a bag. Yeah, it didn't say. Um, so you uh, you also gave a speech at the pavilion. What was I did. your what was the subject of your talk? It was a, a version of the standard food politics talk that I often give, um, but it was very much focused on what the American Pavilion was doing mm-hmm. and trying to do, and how um, you know my sort of current theme is that I think we need to bring agriculture and health policy together, mm-hmm. and this was one of the things that I thought the pavilion was trying to do. Yeah was to uh, say that if you have a sustainable food system, that's going to be healthier, not only for the planet, but it's also going to be healthier for people. Right. And I thought a lot of the exhibits in the American Pavilion made that point. Right. You know, I, I think it's great that they did this, but in a way, I can't. I, of course, I have not been there, and I, I, I certainly don't mean to, um, you know, cast aspersions. But just the, you know, the elephant in the room is our agricultural system and is what we export as an agricultural model and as a you know mm. food model. And so I think it's great that we're showing our our sort of greener aspects but uh, given what a niche business all of the sort of artisanal products are mm. and things like that it's it's like you know I I I feel sort of um I don't know, as if it's it's a little bit of a greenwashing of the American food system. Well, and it, it that may makes be. me uncomfortable. It may be, but I was also giving lectures for the State Department while I was yes. there, and that may require some explanation on its own. <laughs> um, and you the, are not a spy. We and know the that. explanation that I was given was that the, um, the State Department wants people to understand that Americans speak with different voices. Uh-huh. And that there are many voices, and there isn't right. just one way of looking at things. So I was there to give kind of an alternative look at some of the things we were talking about. It's not the first time I've spoken for the State Department no, in Italy, actually. I was there once before, and I gave um, a, a named, a very fancy named lecture at the Food and Agriculture Organization. It was the George McGovern Annual Lecture on World Food Day. And at the end of my talk, uh, the then ambassador to, uh, we have an ambassador to the Food and Agriculture Organization, got up after my talk and through very clenched teeth pointed out to the audience that I did not speak for the American government. (laughs) 
And, and so I was very surprised to be invited back, but I was invited back, yeah. and I had a very good time giving talks. I met a lot of really interesting people there. Oh, I bet you did. That's that's thrilling. So, yeah. Mary, when you travel, do you get to like go look at at everyone's food systems. I mean, I imagine that that is a large part of when you're invited to go somewhere. I know you've visited a lot of uh, pork farms, for instance, yes. in Denmark. <laughs> and, you know, like, I mean, I can't think of any better gig than being allowed to just like cruise around and look at people's agricultural systems. Yeah, this was not an agricultural that... trip. This was a city trip. Yeah. Um, I did meet with um, a very large organic food company in Italy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talked to a lot of people who were involved in a lot of activities, but the uh, the piece of the whole thing that just blew me away the most was something that's being held in conjunction with the Milan Food Expo, which is an enormous exhibit of food art at, oh, the, yeah. at the Triennial Museum in Milan. And yeah. I've been to a lot of food art exhibits. This one had everything you have ever seen anywhere and it would take days just to go through it on its own because it's so big wow. and because it's got so many videos and movie clips and is it from f- food art from around the world obviously oh it's everywhere they had posters from the american world war ii that mm-hmm. i had never seen before mm-hmm. a particularly fabulous one on corn that i had not seen before they had american video clips they had american objects they had uh, they came from everywhere. It's just an extraordinary exhibit. Mm. And if anybody is going to the Food Expo in Milan, you have to leave time for this. Yeah, it sounds absolutely amazing. I hope it will be up for the whole duration Til of the... Till the end of October. Okay, great. Um, a couple of the things that uh, I saw on your blog really interested me because, I mean, you did illustrate your trip uh, so lavishly with photographs. It was great. <laughs> I mean, it's definitely worth a look at food politics <laughs> if you're not a regular reader um, to go look at Marion's posts about the, the food expo because it's just fascinating but you pointed out this kind of ticker tape exhibit of oh, all yes. about food commodities which really struck me and and commodities you know the commodity market and food commodities is something that doesn't really get discussed a lot in terms of food policy at least on my level mm-hmm. and and yet it has such a tremendous impact on food pricing around the world and i don't think that a lot of people at least i never until now until you know, last few years, made the connection between trading on Wall Street and oh, you food should, prices. You should put Fred Kaufman on your list of people to interview. He's written a terrific book about it. Oh, I would love to. So one of the things I'm gonna, I just I noted down the the various things that it said the, the food re- sector reality versus abstraction. What did they mean by that? Oh, what were they the, talking? About? I didn't have the faintest idea. Except, okay, thank you. Except I thought that what they probably meant was that you have this idea of how the food system works. Right. And in theory, it works one way, and in practice, it works a very different way. And they were talking about the in-practice ways that it doesn't work very well. You know, it supports corporations. It doesn't support support individuals. Um, And the, the trading of commodities has had just an enormous effect on food prices throughout the world. Yes. It's treating food as if it were some kind of widget. Yes. And betting on what its prices are going to be. The use of food to grow 
to make ethanol, fuel uh-huh. for cars, right. has had an enormous effect on the ability of poor people to buy food and mm-hmm. have enough money to take care of food. So these are the kinds of issues that were discussed in that and that Fred Kaufman talks about in his book. I'm definitely going to read that book and then, and then invite him onto the show. Well, that, that, that talks, that's exactly what the next entry was, extreme price volatility is a threat to mm. food security, and that's right. what you're saying there. Mm. Um, and I think you know many people uh, pointed to the Arab Spring as, a, in some ways, as a response to f- escalated food prices mm-hmm. during the um, you know d- the the Great Recession, mm-hmm. um, and also that was largely due, I think, to ethanol prices right. and corn and yeah. all of the rest I mean, of that. Commodity 40, markets went crazy. For, uh, an astonishing forty percent of United States corn production goes to ethanol, not. Not even food Not for even animals, livestock. and the you know the livestock producers are furious about sure. it sure. because it raises the cost of their feed, and the the really amazing part about it is that from an energy standpoint, it's practically a wash. It takes almost as much energy oh, it's to turn more. Cor- to take cor- to turn corn into ethanol than you yes. get out of it in ethanol. Um, so this is something that's going to have to change. Yes. And, you know, they talked about t- switching up the product from corn to, like, switchgrass mm-hmm. or sorghum or, you know, a multitude of other crops, and yet somehow that has not that's happened. That's not happening. And I guess that can be attributed to the subsidies that come for corn mm-hmm. and soy in the farm bill? Part of it. I mean, it's just wonderful for farmers to grow as much corn as they possibly yeah. can, and this There's is an a market, market for it. For it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and the alcohol lobby, the, the ethanol lobby, has yeah. a lot of power in Congress and convinced Congress that they could build all these plants and do all this, and this would be wonderful for And yet it has fuel. not happened. The ethanol plants have not grown in response particularly well at this point everybody's looking at trying to change the system because it's not doing anybody any good except the corn farmers except the corn farmers and the ethanol producers yeah (laughs) yeah that's great um there was another uh another uh bullet point um lack of transparency and profits for a few intensify inequality in food distribution i guess what what struck me about this was First of all, yes, we know that. Um, but, <laughs> but like, what were they? I mean, and then the next one was new rules are needed for agricultural governance. Well, duh. Well, I mean, duh. yeah. I mean, yeah, I just I don't you, understand what they're trying. Well, you to have to understand the this. context of this. The context of this was the first pavilion that you go into mm-hmm. uh, when you do the long walk from the subway station. Yeah. Um, and you go into this pavilion, and it starts with the history of America of not American, the history of world agriculture, uh-huh. and you go through these rooms in which they show the increasing industrialization of agriculture. And then you come into this absolutely enormous room in which there is this enormous ticker tape wall with these slogans coming through in English and Italian and ticker tape of the price of commodities at places all over the world. It's it's hard to explain how big this thing is and how impressive it is and how you just sit there gap jawed, you know, with your mouth open looking at it. Yeah. And then I took pictures as quickly as I could on my cell phone to try to get what they Some were sense. what they were saying. And I don't know how clearly they're translated from the Italian. Yeah. Um, but the point is very clear that this is all about money. 
Yes. And um, what struck me also about this is that this particular section of, of these, you know, these little slogans that came up or whatever you want to call them, they uh, pertain so, uh, so acutely to American food system. But I'm, I'm wondering if they are meant to reflect the global system, because I mean, for instance, the Europeans are so much more careful about their food than we are. I mean, refusing to, you know, use genetically modified organisms mm. and, 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 and all of the different chemicals that we mm. put into our livestock uh, sector, um, which they will not use or touch or buy from us. Mm. Um, and I, I just felt like this was so directly related to the American food system as if the American food system has almost become kind of the, um, I mean, I guess it is, right? The biggest elephant in the room. I mean, what else? Well, I would imagine it was hard to find out who had done it. Yeah. And I never did find out who had done it. When I went online to try to figure out, it's the United Nations Pavilion, but it Mm -hmm. was very, it was not clear to me where this particular ticker tape exhibit came from. Yeah. Or who had done it, except that it was enormously impressive. Right, because I don't see these problems in Spain, for instance. You know well, I mean? the farms the are EU. smaller. They're small. I mean, They're nobody much... else has an industrialized system that we do, Not... nor do we have the... No, Nobody else really has the lobbying apparatus that we have, do they? Or the... Please correct uh, They me. don't have the lobbying... Well, they do have the lobbying apparatus, but it doesn't have the structure that receives the lobbying apparatus in so welcoming a way as ours. Right. Um, so that the lobbyists are present in all of these European countries. I heard a lot about that from a lot of people, uh-huh. but they don't pay any attention to it, or, or they don't have to pay attention to it to the s- same level that we do because their elections aren't funded in the same way as ours, yeah. and they are not allowed to have unlimited corporate funding right. anonymous right. in their election campaigns. Right. Um, as we now are, thanks to the Supreme Court decisions. Yes, yeah. It's just it goes right back to that, doesn't it? Money. It really does. It just yeah. goes right back to that, mm. and really just that particular Supreme Court decision. Citizens well, actually, United. two decisions: Citizens United and McCutcheon. But the um, I don't know what McCutcheon is, Mary. Well, that's the one that allowed secrecy. Oh. That's the one that, oh that was a later, that was a later one. That's the um, But so that this exhibit, the point of this exhibit was to show that food as a commodity, you know, what the whole food expo was supposed to be about, mm-hmm. is solving world hunger. And this was the zero hunger pavilion, um, and growing food sustainably so that it won't be quite so hard on climate change and yeah. these kinds of things. So these are kind of Progressive, if that's the word. I mean, they're progressive goals, and there it is, and forward thinking, and that's what the whole thing was supposed to be about. Yeah. But at the, you know, and I didn't see in my three days there, I only scratched a tiny fraction of what's there. Wow. So I can't claim to speak for the whole thing. Mm -hmm. But it was very hard to know at the end what kind of messages people would be taking away about these issues. Very interesting. And did you have a chance to go look at some of the other countries' pavilions? I did. Yeah? And what were their messages? Well, their messages ranged from this is the kind of agriculture, these are the agricultural products that we're producing. Mm -hmm. There was a lot of that. Of course. Um, there There were lots and lots of the pavilions had raised beds of one kind or another where they were growing vegetables. That was all over the place, sometimes Mm -hmm. on walls, sometimes on roofs, Mm -hmm. sometimes just in boxes. 
um, many of them had stories about how the farmers were growing food and how their I, I sat and watched the Argentinian movies. Everything's in video. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're not a lover of videos, it gets old very fast. Yeah. But so everybody did everything with videos, and the um, you know what makes the American Pavilion a little easier that way is that there's 120 college students dressed in adorable Brooks Brothers uniforms um, who are sort of helping you look at the exhibits and talking about the exhibits, and they're terrific. Um, And some of the other pavilions had people who were explaining, but mostly it's videos, um, to handle the enormous crowds that are going through. So even in the first two weeks, the American Pavilion was getting twenty to 25,000 visitors a day. And who were those visitors? European Union? Well, they, mostly they're Italians at this point. Right. And school groups. Right. Um, and Italian school groups, mostly. It's still early on. Sure. Um, and maybe it w- there will be more international visitors later on, but they're getting two hundred or 300,000 visitors a day That's on incredible. the weekends. I mean, it's enormous. That's incredible. Well, we should take a short break, right, Jack? Uh, and um, we will be right back with uh, Dr. Marion Nessel. Um, and we're going to be talking about the 2015 dietary guidelines that were released recently. I'm sure she has something interesting to say about that. <laughs> This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. We're on the Heritage Radio Network. Uh, in the studio with me today is um, Dr. Marion Nessel from the New York University uh, School of Food Studies. And um, we are going to talk now about the 2015 USDA guidelines, uh, dietary guidelines that just came out. <clears throat> and... Um, it, they had. I, there was a lot of pushback on those when they came out. For, Can I be pedantic? Yes, please. Yeah, there were I love two, that. There were two not quite correct things in oh, what that you I just said. said. Yes, one is like they're not out title. yet. Oh, the, and that's true. The final version yet. is not. They're out. not yeah. out yet, and it's right. not USDA. It's USDA and Health and Human Services. Thank you. And these are critically important distinctions because. The guidelines are based on the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee report, but the agencies turn them into the guidelines. I see. So let the politics begin. Indeed. And they have, because as you told me in the car, they had received something like 29,000 comments. Mm -hmm. There was an open comment period, which closed only a few days ago, I understand. Mm -hmm. They actually had to extend it Mm -hmm. because of the pushback, largely from the meat industry, Mm -hmm. um, which literally went crazy because of 
well, there were a number of quotes that would have made them go crazy, but here is the one that I feel was probably the most germane in that sense. Um, they advised di- that adults follow diets, quote, lower in red and processed meat. <laughs> And lower in <laughs> and it, and lower in sugar sweetened foods and beverages and refined grades grains. Uh, so you can imagine that uh, the meat industry, the NCBA, came out right away. Stop the presses! You can't. You know this can't go forward. We want the exp- comment period to be extended. What science are you basing this on? And so forth and so on. It's hard to imagine that the snack industry and the soda industry didn't do the same thing. So I was hoping you'd be able to fill me in on their response. Well, it, that's not all the meat industry did. The meat industry went to Congress yes. and got sixty senators to sign a letter saying we don't like this. Um, <laughs> and now they've got Congress. Uh, writing letters to the Health and Human Services and USDA saying, um, we want to know how you're going to deal with the 29,000 comments. What's your plan for dealing with them? Meaning, we want to know and we want to watch as you deal with those comments. Um, So that's going to be interesting. And then Vilsack, Secretary Tom Vilsack of USDA, has addressed two conventions of meat producers so far. And in the first one, he compared the Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee to three-year-olds. He said, they're just like my three-year-old granddaughter. She she can't color within the lines. I have to color within the lines. And then he gave another speech to meat producers saying uh, sustainability should not be part of the dietary guidelines. Yes, uh, that made the papers. Well, they both did. Yeah. They yeah. both did. Which is just an astonishing remark. Yeah, and it's not <clears throat> up to him because it's there are two agencies involved. And as it turns out, the lead agency on this one is Health and Human Services. Mm-hmm. That may make a difference. That may make a difference. I don't know anything about the Health and Human Services Agency. Who Who is on that agency that we should well, be it's in the office aware of, of? It's in the Office of Disease Prevention and Health Promotion, and mm-hmm. I don't know who the players are. Really? Particularly, um, you hear much more about USDA than HHS, but one of the reasons why it's joint is to try to keep a lid on USDA. <laughs> That's right. Well, to try to shield them from the flack, right? Oh, from the flack. I mean, amazing. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, this is this is an agency that is issuing dietary guidelines for the American public and dealing and it's with funded subsidies. by the agricultural uh, and it's you know mm. its main purpose is to promote American industrial agriculture. So it's got a problem. It does have a problem. What do you think of Tom Vilsack? I thought uh, I was all full of hope when he came in to. Uh, well, well I was Obama, too. But I I'm was. so disappointed. Yeah, personally. I loved, I really loved his coming in and saying that what he really wanted to do was to revitalize and reinvigorate and repopulate rural America. I thought that was so smart. And yeah. such a good thing to do. Well, how do you do that? You do that by bringing in smaller farmers. Right. That's what you do. Farmers bring their families. Families require schools. Schools open. You need, yeah, that's right. you need restaurants to yes. feed them. You need exactly. all this stuff. You revitalize rural America. It didn't happen. No, it, it did not happen. happen. And so I assume he's disappointed about that. But... I don't really know. I feel the, like there was a real, he just kind of dropped that ball. Well, I think he got kicked in the teeth. Um, and then, I never you know, I'll give really one, I'll give one example of it. Okay. Where he tried to do a detente between 
GMO crop producers and the organic industry. And there were meetings in which the groups got together to try to figure out some way in which there could be coexistence, peaceful coexistence. And the growers of genetically modified crops said, we don't have to do this. Goodbye. Right. And that was the end of it. Wow. So he got kicked in the teeth on that one. So I don't really know. I mean, I was heard that the White House was not particularly happy with the statements that he made about the dietary guidelines, but that's rumor and gossip, and I, I can't. And you don't trade in those? Uh, not, no. not very often. No. <laughs> I well, I mean, you can't. I certainly don't write about it because yeah. it's, I don't have a reference. Right, 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 no. exactly. Um <clears throat> Here was another thing that struck me uh, in the executive summary, which, by the way, anyone can read. This is yeah, all it's online. online. It's, it's online. really easy to find. Transparent. Yeah. What happens next will not be transparent. Right. But this because part that is happens behind closed doors when right. they actually write the guidelines, the mm. final version, and go through yeah, the twenty nine thousand comments. Yeah, we will never know how that happened. Yeah, we'll never know how can't much money to, changes hands. Can't over wait that. to see it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, the uh, so here's another statement that struck me as quite interesting. Um, the diet quality, <clears throat> excuse me, no matter where the food is obtained, the diet quality of the U.S. population does not meet recommendations for vegetables, fruit, dairy, or whole grains, and exceeds recommendations leading to overconsumption for the nutrients, sodium, saturated fat, and the food components, refined grains, solid fats, and added sugars. <clears throat> and I'm thinking to myself, <clears throat> We know this. I mean, why is this? I don't understand. Like, when you're creating guidelines like this, and I know you've worked on committees. I was on one of these in 1995. You know, why is stating the obvious an acceptable form of communication when what you're really looking for is to, I mean, what struck me as I read through all this stuff is, you know, how it's, it's all about what we need to do, we should do, we have to do. And then the federal government is somehow intrinsically involved in those need to, would to, should to, have tos, and yet there is no actual, you know, uh, will, political will to engage the government in public health. And I think that's mm. the thing that is so, like, well, let's back up a little okay. bit. What are the dietary guidelines? First okay, of yeah, all, let's talk about first that. of all, they're the middle step in a three-stage process. Okay, this is going to get very wonky, and I'm That's sorry. Good. You know, I'm, I'm sorry. a geek. I'm sorry about this. Um, so <laughs> I love yeah. that. So first of all, there's something called dietary reference intakes. What used to be the recommended dietary allowances, which are standards of nutrient intake for the population. Mm-hmm. Those come first, and they were done 10 or 15 years ago. They're woefully out of date, but nobody wants to put the money into updating them, yeah. so we're stuck with them. The dietary guidelines are supposed to take the dietary reference intakes and turn them into food-based recommendations for the general population right. in a report that is designed for policymakers, not for the general public. Yeah. So the general public is never supposed to see these, and believe me, the general public doesn't see these. Right. They don't see them. Um, and then the third step is to take the dietary guidelines and turn that into a food guide for the general public, and that's where the, the old pyramids were, and now right. choose my plate right. is the current version of that. So presumably the guidelines will be, which by order of Congress have to come out every five years, and we're in the middle of the 2015 ones right now, and then probably sometime in 2016 the, there'll be a new food guide. 
Right. So the the principles are important. The dietary guideline principles are important because they govern what we're supposed to be doing with food assistance programs, with nutrition education, and the food industry takes them very seriously. Mm -hmm. Because if you say eat lean meat or don't eat red meat, the meat industry goes berserk. If you say don't drink sugar-sweetened beverages, the soda industry is going to have a big headache over this Um, and try to do what it can to get it changed, but the soda industry is running scared these days and hence the title of my book parenthesis and winning and winning yeah um they think it's because of health advocacy and i do too um so that's sort of the context for this and the way the process for producing the guidelines is that a a committee of nutritionists uh reads the literature or reviews the literature and writes a very lengthy research report Uh 650 pages that's the thing that's online yeah you read the executive summary it goes on and on and on for another 600 pages um and then the agencies now take that huge report and turn it into something that hopefully will be simpler and easier to understand Now, when I was on the committee, the committees wrote the guidelines, but that stopped in 2005. Mm. Um, And during the Bush II administration. What a surprise. um, What a surprise, where they wanted control over what it said. So this will be a very politicized process Mm -hmm. in a way, except that it's under huge scrutiny because of the fight over it. Now, what this committee did, this Dietary Guidelines Advisory Committee, did something that had never been done before, and that was they mentioned the S word, sustainability. Yeah. And what they were trying to do was to do what I've been arguing for for years, which is to link agricultural policy to health policy. Right. Yay. Right. Cheers. How wonderful that they did that. And their recommendation makes it very clear that a plant-based diet is healthiest for people. And guess what? A plant-based diet is healthiest for the planet, too. That's right. And we would all be better off if we were eating less meat, not no meat. Just right. less meat. Right. Um, but less meat is bad for business, and there you have it. Yeah, and there you have it. And there it will probably stop. And between that and the soda lobby, you know, it's hard to imagine that sugar and meat are not going to remain pretty much where they are in terms of of oh. what you're supposed to have, <clears throat> the percentage I, of your diet. Oh, I think they'll go down. I mean, I, certainly, I hope so. Certainly the sugar... The sugar is under so much pressure right now yeah. that they may actually have to come out with a percentage, mm-hmm. 10% of calories, no more than 10% of calories from added sugars, right. which is actually what the recommendations in the dietary guidelines have been forever, but never stated like that. I see. Interesting. Well, I, I, you know, the whole thing about public policy and expecting the government to um, fund and participate in these matters of public health <clears throat> reminded me, as I told you in the um, in the car, of this piece that I read yesterday by Adam Gottnick um, about trains in the wake of the Philly train crash. And this, here's a quote from that. Um, It said, the reason we don't have beautiful new airports and efficient bullet trains is not that we have inadvertently stumbled upon stumbling blocks. It's that there are considerable numbers of Americans for whom these things are simply symbols of a feared central government and who would, when they travel, rather sweat and squalor than surrender the money to build a better terminal. And I thought that that, you know, that attitude of not 
the government not participating in my food choices. I mean, all of the blowback when Bloomberg tried to inf- uh, bring a soda tax in, and and all of the Republicans went crazy because the nanny state, it's this, it's that, and yet we did the same thing with smoking. Mm-hmm. We did the same thing with seatbelts. We did something of the same thing with alcohol, at least drunk driving. And so I don't understand why, you know, like I, it's it's kind of hard to imagine that in this political climate that we'll be able to force that. Well, you've forgotten the fights over those things. Oh. There were fights over those things, and they were similar fights. They weren't as loud yeah. as they are now because we don't have the kind of – we had a bipartisan government in right. those days in which you could at least find some Republicans who were willing to – Invest in public health, right? Um, and invest in common infrastructure for the general population. Right. Um, you know, rich people have private planes; they don't have to take trains. <laughs> yeah, you know, or they have their own I, I car. Mean, I mean, I was thinking about what coming back from Europe and spending two weeks in Europe, taking trains everywhere, yeah. and getting off the plane at. Kennedy Airport, where's my train to go into midtown Manhattan? Where is it? It doesn't exist. Um, I mean, it does exist, but it's amazingly inconvenient. It's completely inefficient. Yeah, you have to go to Jamaica, and then you change, and you take the Long Island Railroad. I mean, it's totally... It's the same out to Newark, which is only slightly easier. Right. It's in in both cases. And so here you have this enormous city Mm -hmm. and no easy way to get to airports. And this is very unusual when in Milan you get off the plane, you get on a train, and you you get off in a railway station that's across the street from your very nice hotel. Right. It's the same in London as well. Yeah. You ride from Heathrow right into the center of the city, exactly. or either at in Victoria or whatever you yeah. know, whatever train station it is. Um, <clears throat> so I guess my question about you know, sort of trying to attain the American diet through some kind of government intervention. Um, do you do you imagine like, especially given what we were talking about about funding members of Congress, mm. the Citizens United, um, the McCutcheon? All of those factors, I don't, I, I'm just like not seeing where the population, where the public health is going to win over the corporate interests. Oh, but it is and winning. You it think is, it's winning. It I know, I love winning. people who have the, it, the happy. Yeah, yeah, it is winning. I mean, if you, look, to a point. if you look at it from the grassroots level, more and more people are involved in the food movement. Yes, that's true. I mean, more and more people. So, and you can quantify it. You know, food in supermarkets is better. There are more farmers markets. There's more organic food being sold. People are drinking fewer sodas, and they're not making it up with other sugary drinks. Uh, Sugar is down. These are significant changes. People are eating less meat. These are significant changes. And also we've seen the big changes in Tyson, Purdue, announcing that they're withdrawing antibiotics. And one company after another taking reformulating their food, taking the additives out. All of these are signs of grassroots bottom-up pressures that are really affecting change. So I'm enormously optimistic about what the food movement is doing. (laughs) And that was part of my message for the United States Pavilion at Food Expo, is that there's a lot going on. There is a lot going on. And Food Expo is part of it. Food Expo is about food. Which is is amazing in and of itself. Which is amazing in and of itself. And that point is that this is, on an international basis, food is being taken seriously in a way that it never has before. Interesting. Yeah, it it is. And and so my next question to you, Marion, is when will it become part of a political platform? 
That's what I'm curious about. Oh, it'll, it's, like, it's coming. You think so? It's coming. I don't know how soon, but it's and, coming. Or who is going to be the exponent of that? Well, I don't Either. know. I mean, I, I understand know. that there are people who are pushing the various yeah. candidates, but we don't yeah. know who the candidates are yet. So, no, too early to tell. Well, and, we do. We know that and, it'll be Hillary Clinton against my, you know a ragtag mess of Republicans. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm <laughs> I'm not making any bets. Um, <laughs> oh, you, you don't know, think but, Hillary but, will get the nomination? No, I have no idea. But nobody wants to take on food as an issue because it's so controversial. It is just so controversial. There isn't any aspect of it that doesn't get somebody upset. Well, it gets people upset because their special special interests are uh, you know, are threatened by the change in the status quo. But the but the real black and white issues are black and white. Public health, you know, is has an is is being I hate to I don't want to use the word impact as a verb I'm sorry struggling <laughs> struggling not to use effect is being affected is effect too, is effect too soft you. it's a little soft but it's <laughs> food choices or food mm. products make an impact on public health well they certainly and do until that becomes part of somebody's somebody's political platform I just don't see well it's even more than that because food affects the four most important issues in public health that we're dealing with. Mm -hmm. Undernutrition or food insecurity, obesity and its health consequences, food safety, and in, and the environmental impact yes. um, of our agricultural system. And all of these would be made much better if we had less animal agriculture and more vegetable agriculture yes. and supported it in accordingly. Uh, and that's where agricultural policy and health policy need to come together and haven't so far. Yes. Whether they will do so in, in this administration, I have no idea. I'm not betting on this Congress for anything. Oh, I, I wish we could throw the whole lot of them out and that start over. That would be over. good. Really, wouldn't yeah. it? So when uh, after um, your soda book comes out, will you be writing the book about uh, meshing agricultural and health policy together? Well, I hadn't thought of it, but that's a very good idea. <laughs> I think it's a really good topic. I mean, who would do it better than you, I'm Mary? actually going to take a little hiatus, I think. Oh, my God. Yeah, this, was very, this was a hard book to do. Well, it was a um, lot of, I'm sure, a tremendous and, amount of research. And it's a very long book. <laughs> what, uh, just, we have just a couple minutes, but give us a couple of uh, highlights from the book. Tell us, what, what were the most astonishing things or the most, like... Well, I think the overall... What's going to gobsmack the us overall the most? most astonishing thing was the astonishing, overwhelming, unbelievable lengths that soda companies go to to sell their products. Yeah. And a lot of the book is about how soda companies market their products, not only through direct marketing, advertising, and the commercials that you see on television, but the ways in which behind the scenes they market to children, they market to minorities, they market to people overseas, they buy community groups by contributing to community fundraising. Mm -hmm. There is no organization too small to receive a grant from Coca-Cola or PepsiCo. Um, PepsiCo is funding the U.S. Pavilion at the... You know, and what did I just see that Coca-Cola was doing something astonishing? Oh, and the American Beverage Association has now started... In connection with the Alliance um, for a Healthier Generation, that's the Clinton Initiative, um, they are now taking four 
uh, communities in the Los Angeles area, and they're working on an anti-obesity program. The mind boggles. That's all I can say. <laughs> fueled um, by Pepsi. Fueled, fueled or by fueled Coke, by Coke. Fueled excuse by me. Coca-Cola yeah. uh, and Pepsi. It's the American Beverage Association. So That's I amazing. couldn't get over how comprehensive it was, yes. how much lobbying, how much lobbying on every single issue that could possibly affect the soda industry. Yeah. Um, the lobbying around the SNAP program so that nobody tries to take sodas out of SNAP. The lob- the minority chapter, I think, was one of the ones yes, that really very was, upsetting. was really upsetting. It's com- the stories, the history is very complicated. Um, and then a lot of the book is about advocacy uh-huh. and successful advocacy in dealing with soda companies, marketing issues, uh, but also with the water issues and the environmental issues. I was going to ask you about water. And all of yeah. those. So there's chapters on all of these things, plus a number of advocacy case studies that show how advocacy works. And, of course, the big culmination of all of it was the Berkeley soda tax, mm-hmm. which passed not only because Berkeley is Berkeley, but also because the Berkeley advocates for the soda tax did everything right. They did advocacy by the book. Mm-hmm. And that, it seems, and what I mean by that was they framed the issue not as a public health issue, but as Berkeley versus Big Soda. Wow. And that played really well. Well, yeah, in um, Berkeley, I can in see Berkeley, how that would well. happen. And yeah. also, every time the soda industry tried to do something to oppose the tax, mm-hmm. it was obvious that it was Big Soda exerting its right. muscle and people could see right through it. Right. But the other thing they did was they did community organizing in a really serious and comprehensive way so that they canvassed in every single community in Berkeley wow. and got out the vote in every single community. And that's what you have to do. Yes. If you're going to do advocacy and make it work. Yeah, absolutely. Well, on that note, we must uh, we must say goodbye. Um, you and I are not saying goodbye, but we will say goodbye to our listeners. Thank you so much, Mary. And this my is pleasure. really a wonderful conversation. I so enjoyed this. Uh, thank you to my sponsor, Kane Winery, and to my uh, engineer, Jack Insley, as always. And we'll see you next week. Thanks for listening. Oh, two weeks from now. Have a great Memorial Day. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archived programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us with questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.